As I continue to traverse the musical landscape of our cultural history, it is so humbling to be able to connect with cats that had an indelible mark on music in general, both in the studio and on the bandstand. These cats come from all different parts of the country. Having the opportunity to interview people like Phil Upchurch from Chicago or Steve Cropper from Stack, Stax Records or Louis Shelton going out to the Wrecking Crew from Little Rock, Arkansas. All these little pockets of regional sound created these individual records which were made by real human beings in the studio hitting at the same time. Obviously, if you fuse that with spirituality, then you realize that collectively, as a whole, the unit is greater than the sum of its parts, and then the music becomes bigger and transcends the individual. Reggie McBride, welcome to The Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. You know, did you get a chance to play with Washboard Willie? No, uh, I never got the opportunity to play with him. Can you talk about your memories as a boy or just like growing up? Like that was, he was Jamerson's, uh, favorite cat to play with. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Uh, I was, um, James, James Jamerson lived down the street from me. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, I just know that he had a ball playing with. It was was Washboard still around when you were starting to cook the groove in Detroit? I should have should imagine so. Um, let me see how old did, uh, would he be? Uh, well, regardless of that, I mean, can you talk about? You know, early on, um, the access you had to coffee houses or clubs before you yeah. were necessarily had, uh, gigging, but you were getting a chance to see George Bohannon or whoever yeah. was around at that time. Like, I mean, dude, Detroit was like a bastion. Spider Web was there. Um, yeah. I'm just curious about, like, when you first got tapped into, like, what was that? Can you paint the picture of that scene? Yeah, um, I was I was very young. I mean, I was I was always the youngest cat in the band. So I think when uh, Spider Turner was around, um, gosh, I might have been six or seven years old, and. Uh, I used to go to the Motown Review uh, every year because my brother, my older brothers, would take me there, mm-hmm. and we'd see uh, everybody. You know, Supremes, Temptation, who was my favorite, and uh, like Martha Re- Martha Reeves. Yes, Martha Reeves. Yes, and, and the Vandellas yeah. and Gladys Knight and the Pips. Uh, who I really, I, I, I love to see them. I saw them perform at the Fox Theater, and uh, it, it blew me away when, when I was about that age, six, wow. seven, eight years old, you know. Um, but early, you know, during the early days, I, I was too young to get in clubs, Uh People always wanted me to play. <laughs> so you, so there, it was, it was 
Like the Nakarama Club, like you were too young to get it. Like Hank Lawson would play there. I mean, like all these cats. Like, were you, was there a peanut gallery? Like a place where you could go and it was like you couldn't get beer per se. But I'm just, you know what it is? Like it, it's the exposure, you know, regardless of the, your, your God-given talent. It's just being connected to these sort of shaman cats, you know? Yeah, there, there was a lot of cats around. Like I say, they used to come and pick me up on the weekend <laughs> and great, uh, tell, tell my mother and father, uh, <laughs> you know, he's just going to play the club, you know, yeah. and we'll bring him back after the show. <laughs> oh, I love it. But, it. but it might be a little late, you know, and... Um, uh, well, who'd you find yourself on the bandstand with? I mean, I don't like like what what kind of gigs were these? Like the top forty gigs or like R and B gigs? Yeah, back then it was either blues blues gigs, and I can hardly remember the names of some of the blues cats. Dude, around I need Detroit. you to kind of dig deep on this too, because this is where it's at, man. Yeah, because those are like the non Motown, like the blues cats, you know. Oh, yeah, there was Jake Wade and the Soul Searchers. Oh, now you're getting, oh, my God. That is insane, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And, you know, I knew that band. And, you know, I was around 13 at that time. And uh, I I was exposed to them uh, and got a chance to play with some of those cats. What did you What did you learn the most? Like, especially like, was there some humbling experiences? I just know that like, guys from like the art ensemble of Chicago, Famadou Don Moy, he <laughs> he was like on the bandstand with like a much older piano player who barely acknowledged him, um, like verbally, for a long time. And there were times where like you know, you you know you'd stumble with something and and you'd have to go home and shed on it. I mean, do you feel like, did you get some tough love from those guys? Did that help? Yeah, but it, it was never um, to that extent, you know, where right. they would criticize me very much. Right, right, right. Because right. uh, I was I was pretty much on it. I mean, I, I was like, uh, like I say, 13, 14 years old. And my brother, my oldest brother, used to be sort of an executive producer. You know, he had his own label. What was the name of the label? Uptight Productions. Oh, my dear God. Uptight Productions. Yes, on Uh, Six Mile. Oh, my gosh. And he he owned the building, and uh, he wasn't musical himself, but he loved music. Right. To the extent to where he would put the money behind... uh, you know, groups like Fuji and the Black Murder. You're going to Never Everland on me right now. Huh? You're going way out on me right now. I love this, oh, dude. Oh, no, that's, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, that's, dude, I don't know what that is. So, like, he had investors that would put up money to back some of these incredible local bands? Yeah, he well, he had the money himself. He had the How did he accumulate? I don't even want to get, that's going to take us too off the, the rails here. So, oh, yeah. uh, so what what other groups uptight were you playing on these sessions? Uh yeah, they, he he used to take me in because I was his brother. He used to say, <laughs> "Well, we're going to let Reggie come in and play." And one time he said, "I want you to come into a session." 
and uh, he put me in with the Funk Brothers. Oh my God! So it yeah. was. We're talking uh, uh, Benny Benjamin, Earl Van Dyke, those cats. Yeah, but it was Uriel Jones. Uriel Jones, my oh dude, he's been in my. He's been. He's a killer. He, he's an assassin, man. Uriel Jones. Yes. You on base. Yeah. Was Dennis Coffey. Dennis Coffey. Dennis, my man, Dennis Coffey. I've done a couple of dear friend, badass. Uh, yeah. Was like Jack Brokenshaw on Vibes? No, he wasn't there. But uh, Eddie Bongo Brown was playing. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, he had Rod Lumpkin playing uh, organ. Wow. Keyboards. And he also had, dang uh, it, I forget his name, uh, another major Motown cat playing piano. So they had two keyboard players. Right. The well, not Earl Van, then, not, not Van Dyke. No, it wasn't Van Dyke. Yeah. Was, uh, oh, goodness. Can't think of his name. It's uh, all right. It's all right. It'll come. It'll come. Wait, I'm sorry. So, like, that was a demo session, or was like, what? What did that come out as an album, or was it just what happened with that? Yeah, it was an album what? for a group he was producing called the Gaslight. Oh my so god! He used to use those cats to come in, and well, everybody was using those that rhythm section, and. um I, I was in the control room with my bass, and I had to be about 14. And he said, Red, it's time for you to come in. Come on in here, you know, bring your bass. And so Bob Babbitt got out of his chair, and he let me sit down. Whoa. And that was my very first uh, session. I get, But I got to watch those guys track before I went in and had my turn. So, and my brother knew, you know. He was he totally, was yeah, he was completely immersed in the, in the scene. So he, but would, was he, um, did he have the, did he have the, the chops to produce or did he have somebody do the engineering and stuff with that? Oh, yeah, he had, he had the whole team there. You know, he, uh, he had, um, Who's the arranger from Motown? Gene Page. Not Gene Page, but the other guy that did The Temptations uh, and uh, all the string parts. And uh, yeah, you know, it's like it's it's funny. I, I I'm such a uh, when it comes. I mean, I love the Funk Brothers, but um, yeah, I'm I'm just like such a I'm such a like an L.A. Motown guy, like Wilton Felder. Those that that oh, yeah. you know those cats, but. Um, yeah. so I should know the name, but I don't, um, I, but yeah. I'm, well, you have a, you have a year on that because I'm seeing the gaslight. There's a seven inch on grand junction records. Yeah. That would be it. 1973 funk soul. I'm going to get you. Yep. Oh, um, and you're, and, and there's the, I'm looking here. Does this, uh, the producer Marvin Figgins. That's correct. Now, who was Martin? Now, that doesn't sound like your brother, though. That's my brother. This is so... You're blowing my mind, Reggie McBride. 
You're blowing my mind. <laughs> I'm blowing my own mind. <laughs> to Marvin Figgins. Yes, that's correct. And me and him had the same mother, which is uh, Marvin McBride. And uh, so you're half. So you're you're half brothers. We're we're half brothers. I yeah, did. You can say that. Yes. Absolutely. Because so, he had a different father. Absolutely. But we were close because we we lived together when he came from the army, the uh, Korea. He, uh, I slept with him, you know, because we only had so many bedrooms. So Absolutely. We shared. We shared a bed. I was three. And uh, he had to be 18 years old, you know, before he took off again and became a uh, post postmaster, postman. As he uh, as he is he still with us? No, he died this year, unfortunately. Oh, well, bless him, man. His, his... yes. Um, he passed away, Ed, but. Uh, now this is this is really gonna this is really fast. So, so, um, when did did you? I just want to ask you about this 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 band. Uh, this one cat, McKinley Jackson. Does that name? Yes. Now, do you can you talk? Because I just found this record with his band, and I couldn't believe it because this was essentially like the house band, the 20 grand. Uh, And these cats were like the slickest dudes, but you know, they stayed local. Like, so they never made it. And I'm like, these are the freaking cats. And I'm thinking Reggie was in that mix somewhere. Well, I, I used to watch, you know, the 20 grand show used to come on every week. Uh, I well, think Friday night. What was that? A TV show that they broadcast the? What would they? What is? What was the twenty grand show? Well, they would have all kinds of talent to come up, right? And they would mix it in with some uh, stars that weren't that important, you know, like uh, you know, Edwin Starr would come on. Oh my God! Would, uh, this is so badass. <laughs> And it was McKinley Jackson and the politicians. Hey, dude, I'm looking. I'm, the record is right. I found the record came into my, where I work uh, the other yeah. week, and I was like, "All those cats are are." Yeah. I'm like, "These are the cats, man!" Like the and they were like <laughs> the Detroit, like outside of Motown, you know, like they were the the funkiest, nastiest, rockinest band, man. Yeah, exactly. Wow, and, man. And that's the way we all felt about them. And uh, I never missed a show. I'm never. so honored, man. I Can you talk about those cats? And, and like, I mean, dude, I, it's very spiritual for me that, that, that you said that that was like, that everybody held them in high, in high regard because this record blew my mind, dude. Oh, yeah. I, I don't remember exactly who was in the band. All I knew was uh, McKinley Jackson, which I ended up working with him a whole lot as soon as I got to California. Well, let's and, let's uh, hold off on that for a minute. That's pretty mind blowing. Yeah, and I told him, I said, "Man, 
We used to watch you every Friday with McKinley Jackson and the politician. But I somehow, I didn't know exactly uh, who was in the band because they weren't that visible. You know, they, my, they were in a bandstand and I knew they had to be connected with Motown or I figured they were. Uh, somehow the Funk Brothers are connected with the Funk Brothers because there just wasn't that many great uh, bands. You know, that I mean, there was Earl Van Dyke. I'm just going to, you know, I got that. So I, I got the names here. Are you ready for this? I'm just going to, maybe you know a couple of these names. Yeah. <clears throat> Melvin Griffin. Yeah. Okay, so he played sax and electric piano. Then Peanut Roderick Chandler, bass and sax. Okay. Clay, yeah. Clay Clarence Robinson, organ and trumpet. Mm-hmm. Z Slater on drums. Okay. But but McKinley came out. So where did he? Where did he come from? Was he just like he clearly? Did he come out of the Motown thing? That's what I thought. I never asked him. You know, man, how did you start, or where did you come from? It was kind of like uh, I figured he was just one of those cats. I'm sorry. You know, I'm looking at the liner notes right here. It says working as an arranger for Holland Dozier Holland. Oh, okay, yeah. That's I what it was. So he was an arranger for them. Okay, there we go. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, but that was later on, you know, when I came out here. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's, I don't want to jump too far ahead. I mean, the basically, um, when did, when did you, when did you start joining the union and, and, and what was the first band you were in in Detroit? Well, I was in, um, I, I backed up the dramatics. Beautiful. When I was 15, 16 years old. Who was on drums? Norman Perry. Wow. That was a one-off kind of thing, or you you actually went on the road with them? I went on the road for, with them for, oh, at least two to three years. At 15 years old? 15 years old. Wow. Matter of fact, we opened up for James Brown, and I told my mom and dad, you know, I'm going to be gone for... A long time, you know, through the summer, I don't know, three months or something like that. And they said, you're too young. You haven't even graduated yet because you don't graduate until you're 17. They all had to come over my house. First of all, James Brown said, man, you got to go home and get your diploma first. You're only 15. And so they... It's amazing because James Brown actually paused the tour of the dramatics opening for James Brown. He put a pause on it so I could go home for a few days and get my GED. And that's what I did. And then they let me come back. Um, that is, I, I'm not quite sure if I followed that whole story. How, why was Brown so... Um, I don't know what the right. What was the connection there? Why was he so devoutly loyal to you? Well, we were we were pretty hot. We were a three piece rhythm section backing up the dramatics, and he took a liking to the dramatics music, and uh, 
to the whole package, you know, the whole band. He said, I want you guys to open up for me on every show. How was he able to financially just cancel the t- or pause the tour? I guess, I mean, that's, that is a remarkable story. Yeah. He sure did. So you, so you were out on the road. Your parents had already basically, you kind of went out against their wishes, but you went on the road and then Brown said you need to go back and graduate. That's right. Okay, so that's why he did it. He, he, he's like, I'm going to prove it. I'm a, like, I want you to get your diploma and I'll pause the tour. Yeah. That's awesome. Holy cow, man. But you, so you got the, how did you get your GED? Like it, that couldn't have taken like, it had to take a while. Well, I had to go. I was on, I was in the 11th grade already. I was poised to uh, graduate. So the GED was no problem. I had to go, I had to study uh, about a week. And then I went downtown Detroit to the Allied Stevenson building. I took the test and I passed. Wow. Yeah. You know, and that was. Yeah, go ahead. You know, uh, we all wanted this to happen. You know, my mom and dad said, well, he's got to get his diploma. So they sent Ron Banks by my house. You know, Ron. Ron Banks was the dramatic, the high voice guy. Right. They ca- he came by and he said, "Listen, Miss McBride, we got to have Reggie." Uh, said, and this is an order from James Brown. He said, "I got to, we got to have him, and we want him to come out on the road, but he's got to finish uh, school for." And and they let me go. It's amazing, you know. They said, "Go ahead." Good for and that. Thank you. It's so good. Yeah. Wow. Playing with them, you know, a little bit. Um, on the down low, you know. Right, right. I mean, were you in the union at that point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and what were the, uh, like, we're talking like 71 or 70 in that kind of range there? Is that about right? Seven, yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. I mean, you know, what was it like? What were the, did you have, was it, was the road a, uh, could it eat you alive? Like, how did you stay, what were the accommodations like? I mean, and also like ultimately, um, what kind of what kind of venues were you playing like a Chitlin circuit? I can't. I mean, James yeah. Brown. James Brown wasn't playing like basketball arenas. I don't think. No, uh, we would go off and do some gigs with just the dramatics at clubs like uh, in Boston. There was the Sugar Shack. Oh man! Wow! <laughs> oh yeah! There was, uh, and these, these clubs were in the hood. Dude, this is what this is where the rubber meets the road for Jake Fine. This is dude, you're gonna Yeah, so in Boston there was the Sugar Shack. What about yes, in yes. what about in Harlem? Yeah, see, in Harlem, well there was the Apollo. Of course. But and, wasn't there like some other place you know, just in the in the hood? Uh, what about Philly? Oh yeah, what about uh, Philly? They were all over. I mean, in Washington, there was, uh, uh, you know, Washington D.C. Yeah, I forget the name of the club, but it was 
right in the middle of the hood. And it was a shook, you know, like the sugar shack. What about Philly? Huh? What about in Philadelphia? Yeah, in Philly too. I can't remember exactly the name of the place. I'd have to sit down and think about Absolutely. it. But, so, yeah. so you would kind of go off and do maybe just shows with if on on nights off or if you you had a few days off, you'd you'd split off and and do some gigs just to, just the dramatics. Oh yeah, and you know there would be not only the dramatics on the bill, but there would be Black Ivory. Oh dear! Oh my, dude! You know, Stylistic. oh my yeah. God! This is. Oh my God! There'd be three or four artists, black, black, all black, yeah, on the same show. Delphonics, who was my favorite, they used to like tear it up. Right, no, very heady, stealth, unbelievable band. <laughs> kind of like yeah. the kind of like the politicians, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and I just learned, man. I just said, "What?" I said, "This is incredible." You know, because you got uh, the Dale Phonics had a three-piece uh, rhythm section. We had a three-piece rhythm section. And I think the biggest band that was out there that I remember was with the stylistics. They had maybe a couple of keyboard players. Is there any viable live Re Reggie McBride material from that time period that's available? Not I haven't done that. Real search? Not, yeah, I'm not talking. Not a studio date. I mean, like, like a, like a lie, a cooking lie. I mean, it would be ridiculous if somebody had brought, you know, their antiquated tape recorders into the venue. But it just, to me, like that stuff would be just incendiary. Yeah, I believe there is some stuff out there. Wow. I know we recorded um, live with the dramatics. Uh, a lot, you know, watch stacks. We did that. Oh, oh, hold on. Is it what the live dramatics? Is that a double album? Uh, I I don't know because I could I can't find it anywhere. And it's uh, but but the, I'm talking the watch stacks festival. Are you you're on that? Yeah. You, okay, you're you, that 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 one you're on. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's more, we did that yeah. twice. What was that experience like? Oh man, that was mind blowing. Uh, to play for that many people, you know, and watch, and plus, you know, I'm, I'm a teenager, I'm sixteen, and uh, kind of like the first time I've been to L.A. from Detroit, and uh, I was just in the middle of all of it. I remember Rufus Thomas uh, opening the show. And we used to clown around with him. And, uh, but that was a real hot band. We had a three-piece band again. And I think we added a keyboard player that around then, too. And that was it. That was the whole band. Were you guys able to... Um, would, the, would the singers allow for you guys to stretch out improvisationally on some tunes? We pretty much stuck to the record. We did a, a sort of put together a couple of them for medley. And right, uh, yeah, right. But but I mean, as far like 
my dream would be to like, you know, you leave the head of the tune and like you guys are out for like seven, eight minutes, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. We didn't, they didn't have that. You know, we did the intro and did the show. But if you would, would, like, would if, like would would there be solos at all, or just they'd sing verse, chorus, verse, and you'd be, you know, like and it, pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. There wouldn't be very many uh, uh, solos unless they were on the record, right? And we wouldn't stretch out uh, too much because we hardly rehearsed. I mean, we only rehearsed. Uh, like a few days, and oh, we gotta go on the road. We get in the car and drive to Ohio or Washington or go down south. And uh, you know, there'd be four guys in the, in one room uh, with the band, especially. You know, dramatic had their own room, but we had to share a room. Uh, the whole band would be in one room sometime. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, dude, that's just so enlightening. Um, so let me ask, I mean, I got to ask you about the first, you know, the three bands that I, I don't really am not into any of them obsessively, but I respect them all. But I just wonder uh in your musical career the closest thing that you came to early on that that represented sort of the even if it was just for your own pleasure uh was you know return to forever weather report mahavishnu orchestra those uh bands that were like creating like third stream music you know like merging all that stuff together in its infancy because that word fusion gets over is just an awful word but were you were you in a band like that even if you guys were just like like local cats in Detroit did you enjoy stretching out yeah I, I did uh, we didn't we didn't have a, a lot of that you know uh, when I was a teenager again uh, I went to school with Earl Clue you did? Yeah. Oh, that's Me and so, him about the same age. So beautiful. Yeah. And so that's the that's the kind of instrumental um, experience that I had. But we would just play, you know, it was like jazz, and we would play places like uh, casual downtown. Or they would have these, um, what do you call them, a debutante? Yeah, right, right, right. Like like, like, like good paying gigs. Yeah, good paying gigs, yeah. Yeah. And and that's when we were in high school. And... uh, Wait, wait, that was Earl Clue, you, that's the sickest band I've ever heard of. Who was on drums? Gene Dunlap. Oh my! It was a trio, or did you have any horn? No, it was just a trio. Oh my God! And was it? Were you playing? Uh, I guess at that point, I mean, you playing like? Did you play the upright at that point, or were you playing electric? No, just electric. Just electric. Okay, so you guys would 
you call it light jazz? I mean, but w if you had a chance, could you like? Did you play any originals, or was that? Were you infatuated with fusion music, or maybe not? I don't know. Yeah, some of it, but uh, I, like I used to go see Weather Report when they were playing at Cobo Hall in Detroit, and I was really impressed with uh, Joe Salerno. Oh yeah. Idris Muhammad on drums, and I was like, oh my God. I, I, wait, wait, hold on one second. It was either Alphonse Muzon or Eric Gravatt, unless Idris was sitting in for some reason. Yeah, I had that feeling. You know, yeah. I, all I know is he had a karate suit on. Dude, this is... It, he, Idris he, he, did Idris... He didn't live in Detroit. He's from New Orleans, but I mean, that I don't know. that that You're serious about this right now. Yeah, I'm serious. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that is and and was like Miroslav Vitus on bass or was it wasn't during the Jocko Kobo Hall, that was way back. Yeah. It was a concert. And you know the funny thing about it? Guess who was the promoter? I I have no clue. My brother. Uh, uh, dude, I should have did your brother, man. Your brother's <laughs> spirit, your brother's spirit is here right now, man. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is, man. That's your brother. Your brother. Yeah. I wanted to be very clear. Let's just talk for a minute. How mo how early on was he involved in the music? When you were maybe was he already in it? When you were just a kid and didn't really know anything, was he already like tapped into that? You know, because the the scene in Detroit got crazy in the. I'm not sure what the age difference is between you guys, but. You know, Wendell Harrison and those guys were playing in these lofts to all these hippies. I mean, it was yeah. way back, man. Like, there was, you know, and I just. Oh, yeah, this, yeah. this was in 68, 67. He started basically do, making his move in 67, 68. Yeah, I would say that. Wow. And he owned a few clubs, too, in uh, Detroit. Uh, which clubs were those? Uh, one was the, um, um, don't even say he owned the 20 burning spear. the burning spear, dude, where did he, that, the burning spear, man. Holy <laughs> cow. Uh, that, that did, did, did Marley and the, and the reggae cats come in there? Not while I was there. Wow. Yeah. Well, that was before, that was before reggae hit, hit the States. Um, so the burning spear was one. Which was more like, sounds more like a rock blues club. Yeah, I believe my brother, he bought it. And he was in partnership with someone on it because uh, he, he, you know, he, he got his education and he got his uh, uh, business license because he was a businessman. Sure. So when he came out of school, he went there, you know, accounting and uh, business. And he started buying clubs. <laughs> he he is a clubs. genius, <laughs> man. Yeah, he was sweeping them all up, man. Yeah. And uh, he, he was a businessman. And uh, he was very successful with, with it. So... He had his hand in the music because he loved music. He never played any instruments. But he just loved music. And we were all so young that we really didn't know his involvement with uh, 
the stars, uh, you know, other than just being a businessman and uh, putting people together uh, in the studio. And when when I started playing, he, that piqued his interest in me. And uh, also uh, in music as well. And uh, so he, he was he was around and um, gosh, that's a name just popped in my mind. Rudy Robinson and the Hungry Five. Rudy Robinson and the Hungry Five. Yeah, right. That one. That. <laughs> no, no. This is all. You're dropping gold, man. This is gold, man. <laughs> <laughs> unreal man that was the organ player the other organ player that played on on that on, on that on that funk brother session yes oh yeah, Rudy robinson and hungry five yo by the way it was i'm looking here uh there was a prior session in 1970 which makes more sense so it was they they went back in in 73. I'm not sure if you were on, but the original one was 1970. That's like sounds exactly when you would have been there. That's right. And that's that's a hard seven. It came out as a, so the, a lot it didn't come out on 33 and a third albums. There were like seven inches that came out. Let's see, 33 and a third. Uh, I mean, you have you, did you have a copy of that album? Did that album ever see the light of day? 33 and a third. Who was it by? No, I mean I, I'm talking like the the uh, the uh, gaslight. Yeah, the, yeah, the Grand Junction. It, it looks like it only came out as a seven inch. I didn't know if it ever got pressed as a regular record. Yeah, it was. It was. No, I think you're right because it, it did come out on Grand Junction. Exactly. No, yeah, exactly. But it was only like a, a, you know they had it. It wasn't a full LP. I remember it being a full LP. You had, you don't, you have, have you, yeah, no, well, that, that would be hard. <laughs> that. So ultimately, you were on the road at 15. Did you, were you, were you playing the 20 grand at all? Or were, like, oh, yeah, can, a lot, uh, almost every two weeks. So would you be, how would that work? I mean, would like, you know, obviously George Clinton was there. Did you go to Baker's Keyboard Lounge at all? Yeah, with Earl Clue. Now, we used to play there. Dude, you're so matter of fact about it. You used to play the with who and who was it? Just a trio? Just a trio. Oh my God! Are there tapes of this stuff? Yeah. Um. And we live. It's an ironic thing. We lived in the same neighborhood as Baker's Keyboard Lounge. Our house was on the, on the adjacent street of Keyboard of uh, Baker's. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> Just have really gone to Never Everland on me, man. This is unbelievable, dude. So the the was there still. Before Motown left, who were like the elders like that you you know Bohannon, who were some of the cats that were people that you that you looked up to, you know, in the scene, but there was like there, there was still like a food chain, you know, there was still a farm system yeah. going on. It, that doesn't oh, yeah. exist today, you know, but like there was a it was really a farm system and you were part of getting cultivated, moving up into the majors as a pro. 
Yes, exactly. And I remember there was just an exodus around 73. Yeah. Or maybe it could have been 72. Uh, of cats that were with Motown. Well, they had to move to L.A. because Motown moved to L.A. And they didn't have nowhere to go. I remember talking to uh, a guitar player, Eddie, Eddie, um, you know, the cat that played on all the Motown uh, yeah, tracks. Well, well, I should know guitar. this, too. This is unacceptable. I mean, I know Dennis, Jim, like, Jim oh, Dennis Coffee, yeah. yeah. And it would be Dennis Coffee and him. It, it, uh, Eddie, um, doggone it, I can't think of his last name. Eddie, but I know you can find it. Yeah, we will. We got it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I remember talking to him. You know, I think we were at the 20 grand, and uh, he said, man, I'm coming out to L.A. because... You know, everybody, he told me about the whole story. Everybody split at the same time because it just wasn't any. And they were mad at Barry Gordy because uh, he didn't do anything when they got out here. He didn't do anything about getting them any work. Eddie, Will, and, Eddie Willis is the guy's name. Yeah, Eddie Willis. Yeah. No, no, I, I, Coffee went through the whole song and dance. It was really... In fact, it's tragic because RCA or two of these major companies wanted to build studios in Detroit, and uh, and and Barry just saw his vision being more soundtracks or Hollywood, yeah. and, and and you know he and then he left he left all the Funk Brothers high and dry, you know. He did, yeah. And uh, if you didn't come out here on your own, you were you were basically lost. Uh, he didn't give them no support or help. He just, I guess, used all the film cats out here or whoever was out here. And if you you managed to make it out here, then he would use you. Uh, there's certain contractors that would have called you. Uh, Benjamin Barrett right. came out here, and he uh, contracted us with Stevie Wonder's records. And the whole everything he took over everything, and um, when you got a check through the union, it was a Benjamin Barrett check. How did you first connect with him? Um, well, it was McKinley and them, and uh, we used to do a lot for Holland Dozier and Holland, like you were saying. Well, wait a minute, so you. You were doing a lot of the productions that McKinley was on back in seventy two. Uh, I would say seventy between seventy two and seventy three. Hot wa- hot wax records. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. But I, I actually came in on that scene later on because I was locked out with Stevie. So, wait, okay, so, but this is all kind of, like, I, I'm thinking, like, you were on the road with the, with the stylistics, or the, the, uh, the dramatics, dramatics, and then, and then, chronologically, you must have connected with McKinley before Stevie. Yeah, 
No, not really. Uh, I didn't have a name until I got with Stevie. That's when everything blew up. How, how, so how, that was like seven, what year was that? That was like 73, into 72, going into 73. Okay, so how did that materialize? Well, Ray Parker, uh, who I grew up with in Detroit, I mean, pretty much, uh, gave him my name after Scott Edwards left. And Stevie called me, you know, and it's, it's a funny story. Uh, I was sitting at home and he, uh, I picked up the phone and I said, who's this? He said, I, this, he said, Reggie? I said, yes. I said, who is this? He said, this is Stevie. <laughs> and I looked at the phone. I said, you bullshitting me. Just like that. You were not, you were, you were not, you were, you were not expecting. No. You had no heads up about it. No, but Ray Parker had already been with him. Right, but Ray, you only found out later that he, he did that. Later, yeah, he said he, he in the conversation. It wasn't like it wasn't like you know. Be expecting a call from from Stevie Wonder. Yeah, no, yeah. not at all. Yeah. It was a total surprise. I said, "You bullshit me." He said, "No, man. You know, Ray Parker gave me your number and blah blah blah." And it was like that, and I was in shock. I was I was I I didn't think I would ever uh, get a call from Stevie. But the more he talked, this really is. <laughs> now, let me ask you, though. Were you, uh... you know, he said, I want you to come to New York and uh, uh, record with me. So I said, okay. He sent me a ticket, and I was on the plane. Who was in that... Was- who was in that in that working band once you took over for Edwards? Well, that was uh, me and Michael Zambello on guitar. Michael Zambello. Yeah. Damn. That was uh, Marlo Henderson on guitar. Wow. Shirley Brewer uh, on vocals and uh, Lonnie Groves on vocal and Denise Williams on vocal. That was like that was, what? So what? What album was that? Fulfilling his first finale, but we heard the first track that we recorded was Minnie Ripperton, "Loving You" and everything on that record. Okay, so I want to be clear. He he was produced. He was she was affiliated. He was producing uh, Minnie. He was producing Minnie. So and so. Perfect Angel, or which which record was that? Loving You? Yeah, Perfect Angel. Can you talk about that session? Because I'm we haven't even talked about, like, modern... We'll have to get do, definitely do a set, too, because this is legendary. But, uh, like, what, uh, so much of what I uh, love about the older recordings is just the idea that... Uh, Everybody hit at the same time, 
there was minimal overdubs. Uh, the old jazz sessions, maybe not at Motown. Motown had its crazy situation, but a lot of times they just, you know, maybe put a couple mics, one right and le- on on the right and left overhead of the drums, and one on the kick drum. But there was a lot yeah. of leakage. I, I'm just curious about like that mini session, like in terms of did you layer the stuff or did you guys hit at the same time? And we pretty much hit her record at the same time. And sometimes Stevie would be playing drums on some tracks. So uh, we were camped out at the record plant on Los Geniga. <laughs> camped out for weeks, dude. For weeks. <laughs> talking like, because like, at that time, what's really interesting is like, if you're we're talking like 73-ish, 74 kind of range. Yeah, I'd say 73. Yeah. Um, Stevie was probably commanding some of the biggest budgets around, you know? Later on, it was like Steely Dan got that, the Dan. But, but so you were, you were at the, the record plant for, for essentially you, how it, it, it didn't take you that long to learn the material. You, were you already familiar with it when, when you took over or did you have to shed on it for a minute? No, it was all on the spot. Everything. So Minnie would be singing and you like, but the band would be hitting it. She didn't overdub her vocals. Most of the time he would sing the vocal because he was writing most of the stuff. And Minnie would come in sometime later and do her part. And sometimes, uh, you know, I don't even remember backing doing any tracks uh, with I did very few tracks with her singing, but she did sing, and she was there in the studio. And uh, I think most of the time she, uh, we would, we cut the demo, or, or you know, we cut the rhythm section, and then she would come later and sing. I did. So, but Stevie would sing. When yeah. you, when, when, oh my God, that is so freaking bad. And I, he would play drums and sing at the same time? No. Uh-uh. Most of the time he would, uh, uh, either Ollie would play the drums, Ollie Brown, and which we were Wonderlove. What, 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 what was Wonderlove? Uh, Stevie Wonder's band. Oh, Wonderlove. This is so sick. It, yeah. Ali, Ali Brown. So, wait, hold on. So, no, because I, a couple questions. Because, like, really hard to sing and play drums at the same time. Could Stevie do that? Could he sing and play drums? Like, Levon Helm kind of thing? I should imagine he he never did. He never did. But there were some, there were some cuts that when you guys laid him down where he would play drums. Yeah. Yeah. And then, he would, yeah. Yeah, he would either track the drums uh, before we even walked in, or he would do them later. He would overdub himself on on some tracks. But most, a lot of times, he played drums on that on that particular record. Was there? I mean, that Ripperton album definitely. I mean, millions of copies sold on that. Like. Did you guys, what was the, what, did you tour with her on, on for that album? 
Not at all. Not at all. No. And uh, interesting enough, I saw her later on when I was at Rare Earth. Uh, I watched her show because they she opened up for us. Whoa. And that was the only time I saw her sing live. That's incredible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we, like some days, we didn't know what was going on in the studio. We, we just knew we were camped out and we showed up every day. And so I, I had confusion. I said, well, who's this song for? I used to ask Stevie. I, he said, this is for many. And I said, well, who's this song for? Well, this is for me. <laughs> and, you know, you, you kind of had to ask or you just quit asking. You just cut the track because you knew he was either writing for someone or producing someone or he was doing, he was doing fulfilling his first finale, which he was doing that record. What was the, how much of that was like in some cases, were, were there any tracks off of that that were, how organic was the, were the grooves? I mean, was it, was it, I can't see it being, I can see it having some structure, but not being overly tedious. Um, were any, were any of the grooves on the spot that the rhythm section and you guys just started to cook it and he was like, that's it. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, the whole record seemed like he had it in his head, you know, sure. a lot, a lot of it. Um, but he would let us have the freedom to play our own opinion on, on the, uh, whatever, especially the bass, you know, there was, he, the only time he had specific parts is when he had something on uh, in his brain. He said, "You know, I want I want you to play this." And uh, this, you know, it would it would it would it would make sense. You know, and sometimes he, he wanted you to challenge. He wanted the music to challenge you. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with a you know a cosmic super stone genius cap but did 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 he was it all his grooves did you guys ever contribute to a song with a with a with a with a with a hook or a groove that he was like yeah i'm digging that or is it all in his head a lot of it's in his head you know in his left hand for, for me right and he would i was to play that again you know and, and I would cop the bass line, only I would do it my way. <laughs> and he'd be cool with that. And he'd be cool with it. Even live, you know, he would he would do that. He would uh, do stuff with his left hand. He was he, he would call me out on stage, just like James Brown calls uh, cheese, you know. <laughs> right. He would call me out on stage, and he'd start playing something. And it's on it's on the live record, uh BB King's um To Know You is to Love You. He wrote that song too. And uh we did it live in London and it's on it's on an album. Wow. 
it. So he called it, you out, and you were just like improv playing, like like free improv with him, like back and forth. Yeah. Wow. And the audience is sitting there, and he said, "Reggie." I said, "Yeah, Reggie, yeah." And he would start playing his bass line on on the keyboard, and I would come in and do it my way. And he wouldn't hear anything from him. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on your conviction. (laughs) That's so great, man. (laughs) And uh, there were all kinds of situations. You, uh, what was the, uh, how long would you, for, uh, Fulfilling my finale, how how long were did you have the studio? How long were you showing up? How many months? Oh my god, years! Uh, y- y- years. At least a year. Well, hold on. You're telling me that 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 during that time there was no like Stevie never toured at all. There were no live gigs. He was just you guys were in there every day for a year. No, there was some live gig. And uh, we went to Europe for a couple weeks here and there. Would you would you uh, would you go up to San Francisco and play Winterland or places like that or like what kind of bills were you on? Yeah, we we would we would do that sometime. Uh, I forget exactly where all we played, but uh, we did some. You know, like we would go to Matt. Uh, uh, Madison Square Garden. We sure. There. Uh, would they be? Would they be like? Would they be like t- team? Like like pairing you up with like you know Tommy Boland band? Like is that how you like? Were there like rock groups? Like who else was on builds with you guys? Well, with Stevie, it was pretty much him. <laughs> it was. Just, it was. You know. I mean. I just figured. Uh, were there, but like, were there ever situations where, or he really just, was there any other artist like that, maybe at that time? James Brown, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, it could have been, you know, James Brown. I'm sure there was some other artist like that. Um, well, like, Mahavishnu Orchestra, only two, you know, they early on, especially now, obviously, it's different, but then it just seems like <clears throat> there'd be more opportunities to. First, you know, he was a star, but like maybe he'd be headlining and there'd be other. Did you meet other bands that you eventually wound up collaborating with when you were? Well, that's, yeah, sometimes. Like we used to play with. Well, obviously at SIR, this was the original oh, yeah. studio. Yeah. We would meet a lot of bands. You know, Tavares was down, down the sure. hall from us. And we got to hang out with them, know them. Um, uh, with Stevie, it was pretty much a closed, uh, session, I remember. I don't remember really opening up for too many people or anybody else being on the show. And I know he toured with the Stones a year before, uh, I I was with the band. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, it's over, dude. (laughs) He, he, you were on your own, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you, uh, 
as we wrap up set one here with Reggie McBride, just <clears throat> absolutely insane first set. Um, how did, you know, Stevie's not a, you guys weren't playing, uh, you know, in, like jazz standards. You, you weren't um, like, you know, playing jammed out music. And I just, obviously he's a mega personality. I've actually never seen him live. But I guess from a band's point of view, how did you guys, uh, what did you do? What are a couple of the things that you did as a unit so that you didn't get into a formula trip, basically playing the same song the same way every night? Um, it's funny because his stuff was structured, so you kind of had to watch him really closely. And uh, he's making it up as he's going along, wow. but it had a structure. And um, uh, you wanted to stay within that structure, and that was the tune. So it really kept you on your toes. It really kept you on your toe. And pretty soon, when you get to know where he's going to go next, uh, you would follow him and you watch him really close because, you know, when he stands up and he puts his hand up, you know, that means something. And you kind of have to guess what it means. Uh, either we're going to go back up to the top or either we're going to, we're doing an ending. And he lets you know by, you know how you put a tag on the end of the song? Sure. Well, his tags are from outer space. <laughs> so it's that, it's, that's the, yeah. And you know, I love that, man. I freaking love it. <laughs> so you have to really, really, really be on your toes and watch him. That's incredible. What, uh, that, so you weren't even really getting a set list at all, it was just whatever he wanted to play, he'd call it off, he had to know it. Well, that's that's a fun, you know, we were on tour, and we left London, and we went to Germany, I believe, and after the third gig, he said, I'm going to write a set list. I said, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was, it was tight, but it was like, you know, you didn't know what was coming next. Wow. So All we wrote right. a set list, and, um, uh, we kind of went from one song to the other on this list. And he would still add something in there that we haven't played and never played. And he would create it on stage. And that was like part of the show. That is the baddest thing I've heard in 2023. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, it, it was really phenomenal. That is, you know, can we do set two next week? Huh? Can we do set two next week? Can we do another one of these? If you want to. I would love to, man. It was, it was unbelievable. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I'll be in touch. I'll get this up later. But, man, you really, uh, this year, I've done about, 2000 interviews my fifth book's about to come out but in this year calendar year 2023 this is my maybe my favorite interview man well thank you very much jake hey man we'll do it again all right dude 
All right. All right. Yo, uh, pre- peace to your brother. Uh, I hope he's in a good place. He definitely was looking over us today. Yeah. Yeah. Be cool, man. Yep. All right. Yeah, be cool. Take care. Bye. Man.